This is After Immunity, a UMFM limited series that aims to explore the questions surrounding what our individual and collective worlds will look like after we've gained immunity to COVID-19. Join me, Ian T.D. Thompson, as we explore five topics to understand the post-COVID-19 world. Today's show, we are looking at inequality in Canada after immunity. Join us as we talk to Dr. Miles Korak, economics professor at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York, and Mr. Jonathan Barrington, a psychologist for the Frontier School Division in Manitoba. In coming up with this show, one of the areas I really wanted to examine was inequality in Canada. As someone who has had a stable income and structure throughout the pandemic, I have been constantly aware of my good fortune, and I think it's really important to tell stories of those less fortunate. Now, inequality comes in many different shapes and sizes. One could refer to income inequality, racial inequality, gender inequality, the list goes on. Throughout the pandemic, we've seen different inequalities become exacerbated in different ways. For instance, low-income earners, uh, particularly in the service industry, have faced greater hardships because of the pandemic as their jobs have disappeared. In contrast, high-income earners who can do their job remotely have continued to earn an income as well as engage in greater savings. Additionally, unemployment due to COVID restrictions has disproportionately affected women and youth. People have been calling the pandemic-related recession the she-session, with a recent RBC study finding that nearly half a million women who lost their jobs in the pandemic have not gone back to work as of January 2021. The virus has also had a much more devastating impact on marginalized communities. As of January, the reported cases of COVID-19 of First Nations living on reserves has been 40% higher than the general population rate. These communities have been facing these issues all while dealing with systematic social and racial inequalities. Lastly, the pandemic has brought up regional discrepancies. Insufficient access to broadband affects how rural and remote communities receive vital public services via the internet or Zoom calls. This has affected educational support for children in these communities, something that we will discuss later with our guest Jonathan Barrington. Thus, it is clear that we have not all been equally affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, while new government and social service programs such as the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, or CERB, and the Universal Broadband Fund Project aim to resolve some of these inequities, our post-COVID world is uncertain, and many questions remain. How will these inequities evolve in the post-COVID-19 world? Will we live in a more unequal society after immunity? And in what ways will it be different to the present day? How will our social safety net change in the future? Will we see a universal basic income? Will some of the inequities exacerbated by the pandemic only get worse? To help shine light on some of these questions is, in my view, the leading researcher on inequality in Canada, Dr. Miles Korak is a full professor of economics at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York and a senior scholar at the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality. His research has focused on the topics of economic and social mobility, the effects of labor markets, unemployment, child poverty, and social policy. This includes examining how social mobility affects Canada and other countries. Miles, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Ian. Absolutely. So I think a good place to start with this, I've always seen inequality less as kind of a traditional policy topic like energy policy or infrastructure policy, and more kind of as a, as a barometer test or a litmus test of how society is actually doing. But you're the expert in this field. How do you define inequality? I think the way you've just framed it is in, in large measure appropriate because there are many different dimensions to inequality that, that we care, care about. The most obvious or first is, you know, the inequality associated with some ascriptive traits people have, their, their gender, their skin color, their visible minority status. And that's certainly a very important dimension of inequality. Often, though, we also speak of inequality in uh, terms of income and, and wealth, and, and that's sort of my area of expertise. So I think of inequalities as sort of, um, if you will, income-based or class-based associated with the world of work. 
but obviously these things interact, you know, growing up as a, a black child in a, a challenging neighborhood in downtown Toronto is going to have consequences for your opportunities, for your education, and ultimately for your income. And I guess the question from an analyst's perspective is how you cut into that debate. A large part of discussion has been income inequality over the last two or three uh, decades, certainly. Yeah, I think that's a useful kind of just place to start off with this discussion. You know, what, what are we actually talking about? And to your point, there are just a number of different ways that it kind of uh, manifests as well as different definitions itself. So today we are examining how inequality will transform after immunity to COVID-19. However, it's fair to say that issues surrounding these the income inequality, equality of opportunity, were issues before the pandemic. So in your view, how were we doing before all this? How would you characterize kind of the social and income inequities generally in Canada before the COVID-19 pandemic? Over the last two decades, I suppose it's fair to say that the Canadian economy sort of settled into an equilibrium of insecurity on one side and opportunity on the other. Overall, income inequality hasn't changed that much in Canada over the last 10 or 15 years before the uh, pandemic. The big shock to our society, to the way we work, to the way families function and how they interact with the society of work sort of happened in the uh, 1980s and, and 1990s. A whole new policy world, a whole new way of operating in the world opened up with the challenges of globalization and also the big changes that the computer introduced in our lives. And at that point, inequality notched up, but we didn't have a discussion about it. We didn't have a discussion about the opportunities it opened up. We didn't have a discussion uh, about the challenges and insecurities it raised. And somehow the situation was decided without explicit policy debate. The conversation really started to kick in in the 2000s, and inequality continued to rise in, in many uh, countries. I'm thinking particularly the United States. And the reason it didn't so much in Canada was well, in part because we were lucky. We were lucky because of the way the boom in globalization, the growth in China and in other emerging economies affected the resource sector. So it was like gangbusters, if you recall, in Saskatchewan, in Alberta, and in Newfoundland and, and Labrador during the 2000s and first half of 2010s, as uh, a lot of people from CEOs to the baristas working in Tim Hortons saw their wages increasing. But at the same time, in other parts of the country, in Ontario and, and in Quebec, there was just stagnation. And the typical family did not see their incomes rising at all. So in part, things sort of looked like they were in a steady equilibrium with inequality not increasing any further than it did in the 1990s, but that was just masked by a lot of good luck with the re resource sector. What was happening throughout this period was just a, a growing insecurity amongst many families in the bottom half of the uh, income distributions. Families had to work harder to uh, basically stay at the same income levels. So the big transformation in the workplace as, as, as women increased their hours of work contributed to rising family incomes, but wages were stagnant for many others. On the other hand, as young people came onto the labor market and reached adulthood over this period, some of them had amazing opportunities as well. So, you know, I think frankly of some young people in, um, well, you know, if you got a job at Shopify, you were doing <laughs> pretty darn well and able to afford uh, a not bad uh, apartment in downtown Toronto quite easily and many sectors like that. So there were, there are great opportunities, uh, but on the other hand, great risks and insecurities for others as the job market sort of polarized and work became much more service oriented on the, on the one hand, and on the other hand, engage with a global labor market associated with all of this technological change. And in the end, you know, inequality didn't change that much, but there was a lot going on under the surface. And that became exposed 
when oil prices and potash prices fell through the basement in 2014. And so we were sort of in a, uh, as I said, this sort of uneasy equilibrium before the pandemic hit. Some people living lives of good opportunities and many others uh, lives of insecurity, harder work and not much more pain. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there's a bit of um, two different tales happening here in tandem. And, and if you kind of mold them together, you get this sort of, as you said, a kind of a stagnant sort of perspective on inequality, when in reality, there seems to be two different stories. Is that a fair way to characterize it? Nicely put. You know, the top 10%, the top 1% saw their share of the economic pie rise uh, throughout, and the bottom 40% saw their share of the pie fall throughout this period. And the big chunk in the middle was, was treading water. So I'd like to just switch and talk about kind of what's, what's currently happening as, as well as the future. This is, uh, again, the goal of this podcast is really to look at where we're a bit headed. And I think it's important to kind of talk about what's, what's happening kind of currently as we're recording this in, in late January uh, about the pandemic and what's kind of revealed because it's revealed a number of different inequities in Canada. Uh, for instance, unemployment has disproportionately affected youth and women, as well as the virus itself has had a much more devastating impact on marginalized communities. Uh, what is going to happen to these populations, in your view, after immunization? How might these imbalances be resolved, improved? Will they bounce back? Or might they be worse off in the post-COVID-19 world? Well, nicely put. That is the question, isn't it? It's sort of interesting if you sort of go back to the way we were framing public policy in um, March and April. The hope was sort of to freeze the economy, weather the pandemic, and then restart where we left off, hoping that the economic implications of this terrible health shock would be temporary. And increasingly, I think people feel that that's not the case at all. That this uh, pandemic, this health shock, is going to cause important structural changes in the economy for some. Now, one level, this sort of reflects how we engage with work. If over this period you were able to work at home, if you had the kind of job that permitted that kind of flexibility, basically, I think most professional most people in professional occupations had that opportunity. Your income was steady, if not growing, and your expenses fell and you were saving a lot more. <laughs> um, the uh, stock market certainly took a big uh, dip at the outset of the uh, pandemic, but then it came back gangbusters. And so if you were invested in the stock market and you, you were liquid and you were able to put more into it at a crucial time, your rates of return 10, 20, even uh, 30%, depending upon how things fell out. So on the one hand, you know, just looking at, at the surface impacts is there's going to be an increase in inequality just because of increased savings and, and wealth and accumulation on the behalf of some groups. But that's sort of a, um, a superficial cut at it. I very much like the term that you use that this pandemic is revealing existing socioeconomic inequalities. And going into the pandemic in policy circles, there was a lot of talk about the future of, of work. And a good many labor economists sort of feel that the pandemic has brought forward a lot of changes that were always happening. So it's, I don't know, it's almost passe to speak of the world of work <laughs> in some sense, because many people have gotten used to working at home and without necessarily big impacts on, on productivity. It's going to change the uh, structure of the, of the workplace in some important ways. And you might sort of draw some hints about how that might happen from looking at the last big wave of technological change. And that was a wave of globalized supply chains and lowering costs of shipping goods across national borders. And that uh, led to major changes in the manufacturing sector. You know, parts of southwestern Ontario and some communities were just decimated by that. And whole groups of people in their mid-careers faced permanent job losses and also no possibility of returning to the same sort of job with the same sort of pay 
after that shock? Well, you might think, and this is the, um, I'm sort of echoing a book by a Geneva-based economist, Robert Baldwin here, that the same thing will start happening to services now. If it's very easy for firms not to have to bring their workers in from the suburbs to downtown to work in the office, well, then it's just as easy for that worker to be located anywhere in the country, not just in the surrounding uh, suburbs. But how long will it take before firms realize that that anywhere could be across national borders? And many services could also be contracted out just in the way that the manufacturing sector faced a lot of contracting out and firm uh, dislocations. So I suspect the service sector is going to be dislocated. So accountants, professors for that matter, and many other fields will be competing with a global talent pool. And in many senses, perhaps uh, with people who are paid a lot less in, in their domestic markets. So you can imagine just as what happened to the manufacturing uh, sector, of a whole wave of contracting out and a global supply chains now happening to the service sector. So there could be a wave of, again, another big wave, just as happened in the 1990s, of opportunities and challenges. So the world of work is going to change, and it's going to change in a way that's going to engender more inequality in wages. And that shock is going to lead to uh, layoffs of people in mid-career or moving people into more of sort of a quote-unquote, I'm not sure I totally like this word, but a type of gig work or continued contracting out. So the pandemic is going to bring those kinds of changes that have been ongoing forward and amplify uh, them. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and you, you took that question in a direction I wasn't anticipating in a way that's just opening up a lot of possibilities of, of where society and where the world is heading in terms of, of our economy. And, and you're right, in terms of the service economy itself. Um, I want to kind of switch directions a little bit and talk about, I guess you could say, a, a bit of a paradigm shift that's been occurring with essential work. So the pandemic has really opened up just as it's revealed these inequities, it's also open up questions of what's deemed essential in a crisis and the lower wages associated with some of these jobs. You know, you think of the frontline workers at the local grocery store and the risks they've taken on during the pandemic. In your view, has the pandemic changed our perception of what is essential work? And will this change how we as a society ultimately value these roles and the remuneration? Well, Ultimately, what determines uh, wages is bargaining power. Who has it, who loses it, and how it changes. I spoke earlier about the boom times in the commodity sector. This is uh, a situation in which demand outstrips supply for some uh, workers, some people with skills, and go figure what happened, their wage rates rose. So. What we saw during the pandemic and this whole framing of essential work was a temporary shift in bargaining power. It also elicited some basic and ingrained notions we have about fairness. And so you saw some larger companies, retailers in the, the food sector offering pandemic premiums to wages. But we've already noticed that those were just temporary. Whether this notion of essential work has staying power or not is going to be determined by how the pandemic changes the bargaining power of workers vis-a-vis -vis their, their employers. And I think the argument could just as easily go the other way. What we're seeing, I think, again, I'm relying a little bit on, on US evidence, but also on Canadian evidence based upon the pain that a lot of small businesses are feeling. It's probably a move to much more concentration in industries. So they're gonna be a lot more bigger players. And when you have bigger players without countervailing union power, they have more power over wage setting. So if anything over the long run, economists call this monopsony power, you're going to see the shift in bargaining power in some sectors move towards larger employers. And that's not going to bode well for wages. So it's all very fine for us to talk about essential workers, but if it, that stays at sort of at the level of um, 
preferences and ideals without changing the actual structure of wage determination on the ground, it's not going to have a lasting impact. And you're seeing that already. So ultimately, notions of fairness are embodied in the labor market. And if workers don't have voice, they don't have options, and they can't bargain as much for their wages. And public policy has a, an important role to play in this. And in some fundamental way, it really hasn't stepped up yet. Although, you know, we're speaking in late January here, there are some important conversations going on uh, now and remains to be seen how those will play out. But we haven't seen that on the ground yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it really sounds like it's a bit of a, you can, again, you can speak to the optics or, or the kind of the discussion or the ideas of essential work, but, you know, unless there's actual structural, maybe even governance changes to the labor market and, and to the relation with the worker and, and the employer, you, you might not see those, again, that, that change in remuneration that would, you would think would come with a bit of those societal changes. So that's very interesting. You know, you talked a little bit about what might be down the pipeline, but I'd be curious for your thoughts about, uh, again, and, and you kind of hinted about this at the beginning of this pandemic, this was kind of seen as just locking this thing down and then getting back to normal once we're done. What, what's your thoughts on Canada's response to this? And a second part to that, are there any countries that we should be looking towards who, who did this well? Canada's response, I think, has, has stands out as being pretty important in some dimensions. Certainly, I think early on in the pandemic, there were just administrative challenges. The federal government was faced with this huge shock, and it revealed the inadequacy in the administration of our some of our social programs. The employment insurance system basically looked like a deer with its eyes caught in the headlights from this amazing need that was coming. And so the introduction of the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, in retrospect, I think it was really well done. It was uh, timely and it, it got money into the pockets of people when they uh, needed it. On the other hand, the attempt to subsidize wages so that firms would continue to employ their employees, not lay them off and pay them wages, that program really sort of didn't do its work. And I think in part because we are making inappropriate international comparisons to countries like uh, Germany and others. Where we go forward is, is important. I think the pandemic has really brought to the fore the kinds of insecurities that people are, are living with, the lack of resilience, a good deal of asset poverty. People get a shock to their incomes. It's going to be very hard for them based upon their own resources to stay afloat for as much as two to three months. And so what you saw was almost a cry for some basic income or some security in income. And I think the important way that will go is with important reforms to existing programs like the Canada Workers Benefit or the uh, Employment Insurance System. How those reforms actually play out is going to be a, a good question and maybe something that uh, we will be engaging in a debate over the next couple of months. But we have to do two things. One, in terms of uh, social policy, ensure that people have a floor below them, below which they won't fall in their income levels, regardless of how dramatic changes are in the labor market. And two, regardless of their income levels, give them the insurance so that they know that they can live their lives with some security as they face the ups and downs that the future always holds. So I think you really answered this, but just to kind of clarify, just because there has been discussion over the years of things like the universal basic income, they've been discussed in policy circles for quite some time. I've always seen them in those years as they were talked more as a pipe dream, but now this pandemic has really brought them to the forefront. Will we see a universal basic income come to fruition in a post-COVID-19 world or any other big changes to our social safety net? There are going to be big changes to the social safety net, or at least there should be big changes in the social safety net. The uh, COVID has revealed important inefficiencies and deficiencies in the social safety net. Now, the call for universal basic income has different echoes or different resonance, depending upon who's making that call. For some, it's just a, um, an administrative redesign of existing welfare policies, nuts and bolts issues on how to deliver income support and save on administrative burden. 
At another end, it's really just a cry for a more just income distribution without any important sense of how design should act, actually work. My own feeling is that in some measures, we have a basic income. We have a basic income for the elderly through the Canada Pension Plan and the Old Age Supplement. At the other end of the spectrum, we have a basic income for families with children through the Canada Child Benefit, which incidentally was beefed up before the pandemic and even during uh, the pandemic. What we're missing is sort of a basic income for a group of people in their working years, living on their own. They're falling through the cracks. And the federal government has programs that it can reshape to give those people the support they need. The Canada Workers' Benefit is a prototype of that, where basically your working income is supplemented by an income transfer. Parts of that could be made so that it doesn't depend entirely on working income and it could be made much more generous. The other thing that would be very important for the government to do is to reform the employment insurance system, our unemployment insurance system. Only 40% of the unemployed actually qualify for, for what is supposed to be unemployment insurance. So a lot of people aren't eligible, quitters aren't uh, eligible, uh, and people in all kinds of work that has a lot of contingency to it aren't eligible. So there needs to be a significant improvement in the fibers of that safety net. Mm -hmm. And if you did that in the right way, I think you come close to what people are calling, some people are calling a basic income. A basic income, conditional, unconditional to some degree on whether you work or not, but really having strong incentives for engagement in the labor market and beefing up the income you learn from the uh, labor market. That has to go hand in hand with labor market reforms and institutions like important changes, continual changes to minimum wages and other labor market regulations to give workers more voice. My big concern is the other thing that we're seeing from this pandemic is the re-energization of the small business community. Canadian Federation for Independent Business, for example, has played a, an amazing role and to their credit for their members in framing public policy discussions. And we are in a different type of environment in which fiscal policy is going to have to take the role in moving macroeconomic policy forward. And an annual deficit is not an anchor for that. And I think most economists agree quite appropriately so. But if the federal government is going to have a bigger role in spending going forward, different groups are going to start lining up and reframing that debate in a way that is going to be of best concern for them, but not necessarily for the broader best role of society in general. So it'll be interesting to see how this politics plays out, whether you are engaged in basic income, support for small businesses, or for individuals who are working but feel more insecure in their work. Mm -hmm. so, so it really, it, I mean, at its macro level, it sounds like Canada's got a long way to go in terms of improving its social safety net. We have a long way to go, but I guess my own view is you can take important steps from existing programs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That long way to go for me is not a, uh, an upturning or a revolution in the structure of programs. My view is it's a long way to go. Keep your eyes steadily on that goal, but you can take big and important steps from where we are now to mm -hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But I think we should look over the next three months or so, or certainly in the next uh, six months, for uh, a big and important discussion on the design of some of these programs. Mm -hmm. the, um, the throne speech last fall certainly promised us that, and I suspect there'll be important reforms coming forward to employment insurance, to other parts of the social safety net, and people from the arts community to the professional community should be informed and engaged in that debate. Mm -hmm. Miles, this has been a really great conversation. I think you've provided myself and, and hopefully the listeners just a lot of ideas about 
you know, where Canada's headed, where the world's headed in terms of a globalized society with the service sector. Do you have any concluding thoughts on the future of, of I guess, just inequality in Canada in that post-COVID-19 world after immunization? Well, thanks for that opportunity. And I guess my big concern in my area of research is in how inequality affects opportunities. And so one thing we didn't really talk about that I think is important is looking at the pandemic and its aftermath through the eyes of the child, through families and children, and how what we've been going through in the last year and will continue to be going through for at least some more months, how that can affect the long-term prospects of children. So you're seeing the childcare area of our society really come under a lot of pressure. Women take a disproportionate burden in uh, all of household activities and in child raising. They've been hit particularly hard by the labor market impacts. The education system has tried to respond in, in different provinces in different ways to the best it can, but it's going to be quite clear that children lower, raised in families lower in the socioeconomic scale are going to suffer disproportionately than some who come from more privileged families. I sort of worry about the longer term prospects for children, both hopefully that this is not a lost year in their, in, in their education. And we do know that children from more challenging family backgrounds suffer more from these kinds of, of shocks. Not only that, but also how disruptions in the labor market will affect them as their parents lose their jobs. We've seen the fraction of unemployed that are long-term unemployed rise tremendously. We know from previous research that that can echo into the next generation if a family's income is not appropriately supported. So there are all these other dimensions that frame opportunities in a way that could leave some with scars that will take a long time to heal. And I, I sort of wonder and worry about that as well. Well, Miles, thank you so much for your time. This has been a quite insightful conversation into an, an important conversation about where we're headed, you know, in terms of, of society. So thank you again for your time. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And I hope this engenders a constructive conversation amongst your listeners. Welcome back to After Immunity. My name is Ian T.D. Thompson. That was Julian's daughter with their track Barb 217 from their album Static That Carries Over. I was struck by many of the ideas that Miles talked about. How the pandemic could bring a change in global supply chains and the contracting out of and dislocation of service jobs how incremental tweaks to existing programs could lead to essential changes in Canada's social safety net. And just because we say a job is essential, doesn't mean that greater remuneration will follow if the underlying structure of wage determination is not altered. Miles has already been right with respect to where the discussion looks to be heading, especially in terms of employment insurance reform. During the time between this interview in late January and now, more discussion has been occurring about reforming Canada's social safety net. 
In February, the House of Commons Standing Committee on Human Resources, Skills and Social Development and the Status of Persons with Disabilities has been undertaking a review of the Employment Insurance Program in Canada and its ability to meet Canadians' needs. This has included addressing eligibility requirements and the adequacy of the program's benefits. Miles spoke to the committee on February 23rd, putting forward six proposals. You can check out his March blog posts on the program and his six proposals at milescorak.com. Miles is also right with his final comment. We didn't get into inequality through the lens of children and how those in families in a lower socioeconomic position are going to suffer disproportionately. What will be the long-term prospects of these children in the post-COVID-19 world? This is something that needed to be explored further to understand children's well-being and the education system. To explore this topic, I reached out to Jonathan Barrington, a psychologist for the Frontier School Division in Manitoba, the largest geographical school division in the province. He's also a very good friend of mine. John, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Ian. So I think a helpful place to start us off is kind of an idea about what you do. Can you describe to the listeners what your role as a psychologist is in Manitoba's education system and how you, you help kids in the division? Right. So I'm a part of the student services team. So uh, that means I'm a part of, I'm a team of three psychologists in the full division, but I work in just nine schools that are on the Eastern side of the province. Mm-hmm. And so I travel back and forth between the old nine of them by road. I fly to some of them, I stay overnights. And I work inside the schools, working with teachers, parents, and with the kids. So mostly my work is with mental health, behaviors, and academic skills. Mm-hmm. So a big part is consultations. So if the teacher or parent is having some challenges, I can help consult with coming up with strategies and interventions for them. I do professional development. So I do courses and classes with teachers or with parents. I can run groups and interventions with the children. But the the biggest part of my job is assessments, which is kind of like an investigation role. Mm -hmm. I I feel like I'm a bit of a detective, right? I go into the school, I interview everybody, I do some observations, go through all the files, and then I do individual assessments with kids to figure out their strengths and challenges to help better support them. Yeah, I think that's um, it's a noble cause. You're a strong contributor, I think, to the, the school division and the school education system itself. Can you describe maybe a little bit about the role and the structure of the school itself? What can the structure of a school do to help a child who might be one of those children that you are assessing, you know, for psychological needs? What can the, the structure of the school give to them who are facing those difficulties? Well, we know that Structure and routine is incredibly important for development. And a school, a good school, is an ideal environment for a child to grow and develop because it has good structure, plenty of choice, a lot of freedom to learn, a lot of children their own age to interact with, to learn social skills, to learn important skills that the children will need when they grow up. So ideally, a school has all of the stuff that a child needs to develop in a healthy environment, right? Mm-hmm. A child needs structure, needs routine to, to develop properly. But there has to be that balance of structure and attachment and choice because too much structure is bad and too little structure is bad. And so a good school has that balance, right? That you- yeah. Yeah, the balance between, as you said, the structure of uh, a routine, going to math class, going to phys ed, you know, versus the choice of maybe, you know, who you interact with, you know, on the playground. Is, is that kind of where you're heading at? Yeah. A school day is very routine, right? You go to school off the bus at the same time every day. Uh, you take your jacket off in the same way. You listen to O Canada. You stand. Um, you have the morning announcements. All of these routines are consistent. And that predictability is really important for a developing mind to grow. And then in the classroom, when you do the activities, there's plenty of rewards and consequences that make sense. And that is important for development. But there's also that freedom of choice, right? Who to hang out with? Do you answer in class? What do you do during recess and gym? Like there's that freedom as well that's important. The balance is the key of those two. 
Mm -hmm. So today's episode, we are talking about inequality and everything. And the notion in a lot of public policy circles at that macro level is seeing public education as, you know, an essential service, kind of a great equalizer, providing families of various income levels, the ability to kind of send their kids to a school, you know, with that structure in place, as we've talked about, knowing that there's certain standards in place, there's certain structures as, you know, the morning announcements at a specific time. But the pandemic's changed that, obviously, you know, it's, it's really thrown a, a curveball into that. In your view, what has been the impact, the effect of the pandemic on children attending school, particularly for the sort of children that you might work with personally? Right. It's a complete disruption of their routine, right? Mm -hmm. It's a disruption of just access to being with their teachers, right? If you think about a regular school day, you have a teacher that has a classroom of 20 to 30 kids for five and a half hours every day. But now from distance wise, that's impossible, right? A teacher can't see all of their kids every day, all the time, as long as they were in usual time. And so a lot of my kids in rural communities don't have the capability of accessing technology for like Zoom lessons. They can't do that, right? There is no service for that. So they rely on teachers dropping off work. They rely on teachers coming and teaching lessons outside their door or individual lessons. And you can't, you can't have the same amount of lessons or the same amount of instructional time that you usually would, mm -hmm. which is incredibly damaging. But then there's also lack of services too, right? Mm -hmm. but, I would just kind of like to focus in on that aspect that you talked about in terms of maybe in the rural areas and the access to kind of the formats that they need to have that structure in place. What are other reasons that children might not be able to attend school? One of them may be broadband issues come to mind, but are there any others that kind of limit the child's ability to get to a school and to get that structure that they need? Right. So a big piece is, say, transportation, right? The buses are a bit more difficult out rurally. Sometimes parents don't have cars. They can't get the kids to school. That's a big piece. Like just getting to the school is difficult. There's also the, the internet is, is probably like the biggest piece, but also there's a, there's a big fear of COVID in rural communities. The concept of it, if it comes in, it will ravage the whole town. And we've seen it happen, right? It, it does happen all the time now. And so there's a fear that if they send their kids to school that it's going to spread throughout the town and so a lot of kids are held home or stay home because parents are afraid reasonably afraid but still yeah yeah well that's going to be precisely it you know they're, they're not going to send them because of that fear and we are in the pandemic so it's a to some extent it's a quite rational fear and we have seen it as you said you know we have cases here in manitoba where you know case got out and it, it has ravaged a, the rural area but of course it does limit the child's ability to attend the school and to get that structure so john today we're talking again about inequality the access to education particularly those of kind of low lower income and we're interested in how society might be different in the post-COVID-19 world. You know, Miles Korak, we, we talked with him about how children on kind of lower socioeconomic scale might suffer disproportionately than others in maybe more privileged families. As a psychologist, what worries you about this? What worries you about kind of the long-term effects of children not attending school because of this pandemic? Again, what would we see kind of in that post-COVID-19 world because of this? Well, if we started where we are now, where kids in rural communities and poorer communities don't have as much access to clinical services, right? So they don't have speech therapy, occupational therapy, physiotherapy, psychology, counseling, all these therapies are not there nearly as much as or as often or as intensive as they should be. We take that into account. We take into the account that they're missing a huge amount of school and learning time. So in the normal years, right, uh, there's a, a summer slide every year where children are at a certain point in June when they leave, and then they drop a little bit by the time September comes. But now this gap is huge. The summer is now a year long instead of two months. So there's going to be that dramatic decrease. And so we also know summer slides hit poor students harder and students with larger needs harder simply because of the lack of resources. Right? You don't get tutoring <laughs> as easily. 
um, these clinical services aren't as available. There are many, many reasons why the summer side is strong, but now the effect is going to be that much more because of the time is, is not there, right? Also, there's an incredible amount of stress, right? So we know that stress damages neurons. It hurts learning, behavior, executive functioning. And children who are in families with high stress feel that stress, right? And that affects their learning, it affects their behaviors. And so it, uh, the rural communities and poorer families have higher stress now, right? And so they're gonna be disproportionately affected by this increase in stress. Yeah, yeah. Just on a side note, I always knew that this would be a heavier discussion, you know, just by the nature of the work and the seriousness of, of this inequality. But, but you talked about this aspect of the loss of kind of education itself. And one of the things that is being talked about right now uh, amongst parents is this idea that because of the pandemic's disruptions, because of this lack of adequately educating children, that they might have to repeat the grade just because they haven't achieved that educational standard in place. In your view, is this is this the correct assessment of, of how we should be looking at this? Has this been really a lost year in the children's education, or is it even more than that? Well, I guess it's kind of a tricky question that's in two pieces, but I'll, I'll answer the second part first about the last year. And yes, for many students, it's going to be a lost year, right? Simply because of a lack of access to education. They can't, they're not at school, right? And yes, it will have, it'll be more than the last year because there's going to be a backlog. There's going to have to be catch up. There's going to be a drop, right? So it's going to be difficult to catch up. But kids are very resilient, right? Most children will catch up. Most children will, might even thrive and do better afterwards. But you never know. And children in lower socioeconomic statuses tend to be hit harder by this. And so they, they might take longer to recover or might. It might have really lasting effects, lasting ripple effects. Mm -hmm. But as for should we repeat the year and hold kids back? This has been a debate for many, many years, long before COVID. Like, should we even hold kids back? And the research is a little mixed, but it points towards, no, we shouldn't hold kids back. Mm. There's so many long-term effects in retaining kids from changing peer groups to self-esteem to what is, what is gained by repeating a year, mm -hmm. it can be sometimes more damaging than doing the year again. And so that's kind of why Canada has a bit of a policy of being very cautious about retaining kids. It's not often done. But then say we do retain kids, are we going to hold back everyone? Because that's not really fair. Like some kids are going to thrive, mm -hmm. so we're not going to hold them back. Are we going to hold back just the kids who do poorly? Because then <laughs> that's pretty damaging too, right? You're going to split classrooms, you're going to split communities, and, and that's not necessarily helpful either. So, no, no, I don't think we should hold kids back. I don't think we should have a blanket statement of that because we don't know what those lasting effects could be. That could be even worse. That's very interesting just because it sounds like, you know, has this year been problematic? Absolutely. But that's not the correct solution to kind of undergo because, you know, if we're talking about stability, if we're talking about structure, it might just disrupt them more. Is that a correct way of kind of looking at this? Yeah. You're punishing a child for a mistake that they never made, mm. right? It, more disruptions, more stress. How bad do you want to make this? Mm -hmm. right? yeah. It's really bad enough. Yeah. Right? No, no. And, and that's precisely it. It's about how to kind of mitigate those problems. So John, part of your job is to deal not only with the kids themselves, but the larger kind of relations tied to the children. You, you talk about, you know, dealing with teachers, dealing with, with parents as well. And one aspect is the family dynamics at play here. And kind of, again, those inequalities might come to the surface here. Dr. Miles Korak, in our interview, kind of talked a little bit about how the labor market effects of, say, unemployment on parents can maybe echo into that next generation of the kids again, if the family's income isn't adequately supported. Do you have any thoughts on this, on how kind of the parental success or difficulties might echo or might kind of affect the children's ability to succeed? We'll go back to that stress piece again, maybe a little bit, because these are micro traumas that is happening. Um, so families with lower incomes are experiencing thousands and thousands of micro traumas, which are damaging neurons, damaging the ability to learn, 
damaging ability to manage emotions and behaviors and damaging health. So, and these effects are passed on. Trauma is intergenerational. So these micro traumas can build up to complex trauma and this complex trauma can be passed on genetically or through families. And so you might have ripple effects that go on for generations because of something like this. But also don't want to be all doom and gloom. There is going to be kids who, who do thrive, right? There, there will be kids who are very resilient, but it's going to be disproportionate. Yeah. Kids in lower income families are going to be hit harder than kids who are in richer families. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So John, I kind of want to switch directions a little bit in terms of what we've been talking about and talk a little bit about indigenous schools and communities. As a psychologist in the frontier division, you look at also, you deal with public schools, but you also deal with First Nation schools. And the indigenous communities, obviously they face significant challenges during this time with the reported cases of COVID are greater on First Nations reserves and Indigenous peoples continue to face greater kind of social and racial inequalities. As someone that takes part in helping First Nations schools, can you talk a little bit about these communities and and the issues that Indigenous peoples have had to face during this pandemic? Well, the communities that I work with feel very forgotten. They feel forgotten by the rest of Manitoba. Mm -hmm. They're left alone and isolated. There's a huge lack of service. Just a kind of a side note, like I live in the city where I can order food to be dropped off to my house. Mm -hmm. I can do curbside pickup. I can do delivery. All these services protect me from COVID, but you can't in the reserves. They don't have the same services there. So it's much harder to avoid each other. It's much harder to avoid catching COVID because you have to travel to the city to get services or you have to have people come up into the reserves to get services. So that's a challenge in itself. But yeah, these communities are still impacted by the racism and judgment from the city. That is quite challenging. You've you got to be compassionate about people who are forgotten in these towns that are underserviced with the boil water advisories, mm-hmm, with the mm-hmm. lack of internet with the isolated communities. You got to give them a little bit of a break too, right? Yeah. We'll continue on. You mentioned you don't want to be seen all with doom and gloom. And I do want to talk a little bit about supports and your thoughts on it and what could potentially be needed during this time. In your view, what supports would you like to see address, be used to address these kind of educational inequities as we move past the pandemic, as we enter that post-COVID-19 world? Again, what supports would you like to see? Well, the pandemic has really highlighted the need for technology. The access to internet is incredible now. And it's, I feel like COVID has just highlighted that piece. And so support-wise, communities need access to strong internet service. The, the fact that I can do an assessment virtually with a, a child in a community with good internet, but not in a community with poor internet is problematic. So we need to, to do that. That's a big piece. We need a lot of mental health support to go north, much more than we have now. Just therapy in every piece, right? We're missing services. We have a gap of service now. So now we need to bring up speech therapists and occupational therapists and physiotherapists and mental health supports. Mm-hmm. Those need to go up. We can't just dump money on these communities. We need to be very, very strategic in, in how we provide the supports. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's, it sounds less like it's just the idea of throwing money at the issue and actually utilizing that money to provide those mental health supports. Would that be a kind of an accurate way of, of characterizing it? Yeah, we need to have a conversation with the communities and see what they want. Mm-hmm. You got to talk with them and say, how do we make life better for you? We can't just make decisions for them. And throwing money at them might seem like a temporary solution, but it it's not going to help nearly as much as providing service, providing people to go there and stay long-term, not just for a week. Yeah. I kind of want to talk to you about that because, John, we've been friends for a while. And I got to say, you know, the number of times you've been in your car, you're driving up north, you're driving to these communities. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't 
kind of understand, you know, it's not anything people do. They're, they're in the city, they're in Winnipeg, they work in Winnipeg and that's the extent of it, or they work in Toronto or they work in that city and they don't get exposed to the Northern and rural communities to that extent. I guess what I'd like to, to ask is for those types of individuals, what, what do you think that they should know about in terms of Northern communities and rural communities for some of that might not necessarily be exposed to the issues and challenges that they face? Well, there is a big fear in Winnipeg, we call it the perimeteritis, right? There's a fear of Winnipeggers leaving the perimeter. They just, they're scared of moving outside of the city, of leaving the bounds of our town. And so there are very few people who are willing to go rurally and stay there long term. Maybe they'll go there for a year, maybe they'll go there for two. But there's this constant turnaround of people coming in and out and in and out. And so there's no consistency. Right? You might have the same family doctor for decades in Winnipeg, but you might have a new doctor every year if you live up north. There's a constant flow of people coming in and out. And that's a challenge. Right? That's a challenge that they have that we don't think about down here, right? Yeah. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head there, John, just because... I was born in Winnipeg, moved out to Toronto, an even larger city, and my exposure to that, you know, I, I have kept those ties over decades, whereas, you know, they might just, family doctors might come and go over the years. So, John, I, I want to kind of circle back because you talked about the supports and and the growth of technology in this. And before this interview, we talked kind of just like a little bit of the pre-interview just about this topic and what you needed to be able to do your job as a psychologist and to perform your assessments and to talk to children and, and help with their well-being during this time. You were waiting on two iPads to help 67 children, which I think is just absolutely ridiculous, if not kind of absurd of just the amount of just waiting for two things to help so much. Have those iPads arrived? They did arrive. Okay, okay. It can rest a little bit easier now. We had to make a bit of a roundabout workaround, mm-hmm. but they arrived and now I can finally start my assessments again. Yeah. It's going to be a new challenge, but <laughs> thankfully we, we can start. Yeah, you have the infrastructure now and that's, that's what counts. John, this has been a very insightful and I think important conversation about some of the inequalities that Northern, rural, Indigenous communities might be facing during this time. Do you have any final thoughts on this topic, on where these inequalities might go in that post-COVID-19 world after immunization? Yeah, I have a lot of hope. I have a lot of hope that we can learn from this. That it's not just a year and then we have to go back to the way it was before. It shouldn't be a blip. We need to learn and we need to grow from it. We need to Realize that we need to have compassion for each other, for people who are in situations that we don't understand. People living in lifestyles that are completely different from us, we need to recognize that they're people too and they have challenges that are different from us. So we've got to have compassion for them. We also have to think about mental health much more than we ever did before. I know it's been slowly increasing. We're a little bit more aware of mental health, but it needs to be a bigger focus than we ever had it as one. But yeah, this, this shouldn't be, let's get back to the way it was before. I hear that a lot, but it's, it's no, we need to grow from this. We need to realize, hey, we can use this technology to help us in ways that we didn't use it before. Like maybe I should be doing more virtual meetings, more virtual assessments to save on travel time. Right? Maybe people should be working from home more often. Maybe we need to take our health more seriously. These are things that I think we need to learn. And I have hoped that we as a society can learn from this and can grow. And also I hope that we recognize the value of education because I worry that people see it as a glorified daycare. And uh, <laughs> I think we need to realize that it's much more than that. Development of children is so important and schools are so valuable for that. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great way to kind of conclude this, John, in the sense of this notion of moving back to the way things were is not desirable anymore. It's about how can we improve as a society with this. John, thanks so much for your time. This has been a a very insightful conversation. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having me. From what we've learned today, it is clear that the pandemic has exacerbated inequality in Canada in a number of different ways, too many to speak to in detail in a conclusion. 
John's discussion was important as it brought up critical breaking points regarding the rural-urban divide, the need for technology and stronger internet access across Canada, and a need for those in the city to understand the unique challenges of those in rural communities. But something worth emphasizing again is John's conclusion. This pandemic should not just be seen as a lost year as we go back to normal, but rather as a period we need to learn from and to grow from. In learning of these exacerbated inequalities, we need to develop greater compassion for those that live different lives and face different challenges than our own. We need to learn from this and do better. Thanks for listening to After Immunity. A big thanks to Miles Korak and Jonathan Barrington for coming on today's episode. Tune in next time as we discuss Canada's local arts scene in the post-COVID-19 world. Host and executive producer is myself, Ian T.D. Thompson. Associate producers are Neil Kramer and Jonah Coetzer. After Immunity is a UMFM limited series broadcasted out of the University of Manitoba. For more information on the series, visit umfm.com. If you have any thoughts or comments on the series or anything you heard on today's episode, email us at after.immunity at umfm.com.